Welcome to Strong Words with Ian Strong. I'm your host, Ian Strong, and thank you so much today for joining me for what's going to be a really great episode. You know, most of my episodes usually revolve around the entertainment aspect. You know, I've had people in all different forms of the entertainment industry here on the show, but I thought today I would bring a little bit more attention and awareness to a more serious topic of discussion, which is very near and dear to my heart, mental health awareness. I'm going to introduce you to another side of me that you may not know actually exists, having listened to this show regularly, and I hope you do. And while a mental health awareness show with Peach and Tish sounds like a phenomenal idea for a television show, hashtag don't steal that idea, I wanted to bring two of my friends on who are mental health professionals in different fields to help shed some light and some awareness on what to expect, how to go about getting help, the physical, psychological, mental tolls that are taken on our bodies when we bottle in things like grief, loss, trauma, abuse, depression, anxiety, and all those other things. Because if you are feeling those things, I want to let you know that you are not alone and you do not have to suffer through this alone. And Peach and Tish are going to be along for the ride to help me shed some light on these things while looking at it through the lens or perspective of my personal experiences. So before we get into a mental health discussion with Peach and Tish, let's do what I do every episode and let's play a little bit of segue music that I use to transition into the discussion that I personally recorded every instrument for just for you. I call this segue Groovy Metal on Strong Words with Being Strong. was coming up with the idea this is an episode i've been looking forward to doing pretty much since like my first one where i want to get a little bit more personal about my journey and struggles with anxiety and depression particularly in wake of my wife's passing in 2016 and and i didn't want to just do that by telling the whole story by myself i wanted to be able to bring a lot more awareness in for not just me but for other people who may be listening that could maybe benefit from hearing my story and some of the ones that you might help us help me tell for people that may be struggling and want to get help but don't know where to start or don't know what to expect or think that there's some kind of negative negative stigma attached to the kind of person that requires that kind of help so i just want to get all that on the table today with the two of you because mm-hmm. um, when i started thinking it like i was i was thinking like well who can i get to help me do this and then I started thinking like Lawrence in Office Space, where I was like, I'll tell you what I'll do, man. Two chicks at the same time, man. That's what I'm going to do. So I had both of you. I, I didn't want to do it with just one of you. I wanted to do both. Let me rephrase. I wanted to have more than one perspective on than just my own. So when we're talking about the concept of mental health, there's a lot of stuff to digest and, and go through because it affects everybody differently. And the type of help that a person would need to seek may not be beneficial to go to one kind of therapist or doctor or however you are getting your help. So I wanted to bring the two of you on because you both work in different fields of mental health, but you still are mental health professionals. So I have Peach here, who 
has been on the show before. Yes. For the the trip we did to Mexico, which Ooh. was my wedding. Yeah, it was her. It was her wedding. We had a Very great time. Nice. It was a great episode. A lot of people seem to really enjoy it. And then I have uh, Tish here, who we go back a long ways, but this is the first time we've hung out in. 10 to 15 years? I was going to say probably close to 10 years because it was yeah. before I had my daughter. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's it's been a while. So first of all, thank you both for coming today mm-hmm. to help do this. Thank you. And I figured I would start by asking you what exactly is your particular field of expertise so that we can get a better understanding of the, the whole world that mental health kind of encompasses. So uh, Tish, I'll start with you. What is your particular area of expertise mm-hmm. in the mental health professional field? Sure. So I am a private practitioner. I'm the CEO and a licensed professional counselor for Phoenix Counseling Services, which hails itself to be a holistic counseling practice, but also an affirmative counseling practice for the LGBTQIA plus community. I know that's a mouthful. (laughs) Um, In addition to that, I just wrapped up a certificate in developmental trauma. So I see a lot of clients with some pretty intense trauma work. And I I have a DBT certificate, which also works well with people with trauma, and I treat the eating disorder population. So people who struggle with eating disorders is a big passion of mine as well. So when you have somebody who comes in for the first time who's Mm -hmm. either experienced trauma or wants to get help with something like that, how do you break the ice with somebody like that? Sure. So I think, so I did five years at an agency before I opened up my own private practice. And I would say one thing that's very different about counseling private practice is when you pick up the phone and you call someone, it is actually your therapist you're talking to. So we get Mm. to have a conversation on the phone to see if we're a good fit before you would even come in and get services. And it's just generally, let's get to know each other at first. Let's see, tell me about you. Tell me what you want from treatment. What are you looking for? And it's like a little brief interview, kind of see if we jive, I guess, so Mm -hmm. to speak, because I'm a firm believer. My motto with counseling is when somebody comes in the door, they're in the driver's seat. I'm your co-pilot, right? And I'm never going to tell somebody to turn left when they're trying to turn right unless they're in physical harm at the end of the day. That makes a lot of sense because about a year after my wife passed away is when I had what I call an emotional breakdown. Mm -hmm. I was just at a place where I used the metaphor with my therapist that I felt like I was one of those people who, like the jugglers who spin the plates on the ends of sticks, and I lost my place and they're all about to fall. Because there had been a lot of things, not just with my wife's death, but you know, my mom had passed away and I had a very tumultuous relationship with my dad who I haven't seen via my choice in the last maybe 10 years or so. And and my cousin who was 25 when he passed, like there's a lot of stuff to go through that I never really dissected mm. in order to emotionally process. And that was something that when I brought it up to my therapist, she basically said like, that's a really good metaphor to describe what it is that you're going through. And now that you've identified that, Mm -hmm. let's just deal with one thing at a time so that you're not feeling so overwhelmed and so anxious and so depressed Mm -hmm. because you have all of this that you have yet to process. Let's just talk about what's bugging you today. And when we got together, she said, this will be the only session that we'll take in which I will take notes. Mm. Uh, after that, she's been really good with you know just remembering what it is that we talk about, despite you know whether or not it's one week or a month between sessions. And 
I kind of went into it with like, again, when we were talking about the negative stigmas associated with it, I was always the kind of person that was like, I don't need that. I, I don't need someone to help me be a better version of myself. I already can identify the problems. I can fix them myself. Even, you know, whenever I was having issues with Amy toward the end of, of her life, I kind of said, like, there's no problem that we need someone else to fix for us. We need to sit down and fix mm-hmm. it ourselves, whether that's we need to communicate or we need to spend more time together or whatever it is we need to fix it, we should be able to do it by ourselves. And then after a while, things had just gotten so bad that I had said that I'm willing to admit that I don't have the answers to all of our problems. And if that means that we need to bring in a third party just to help us bridge the gap that seems to be dividing the two of us, I'm open and willing to try that out. Now, we unfortunately never got that far because she ended up passing away before we had the chance to do that. But I kind of said to my my doctor, despite the fact that I have this ideology in my mind of the type of person that requires mental health help, Mm. I'm still open-minded enough to where I'm sitting here today anyway, and I'm going to listen to what you have to say and just kind of base it on a session-by-session basis. And that was, I mean, I've been seeing her for um, almost three years now, and it's been really helpful to me to just dive into things, whether it's bitching about what problems I have with my job today. It's, I never really understood how helpful it can be just to get all of your thoughts out of your head and, and just get them out on the table to somebody who is genuinely listening as opposed to either trying to fix your problems or wait for their turn to speak. Mm-hmm. So Peach, you work with kids more primarily, right? That That's your particular field of expertise? Yes. So kind of the same. Um, My particular, I guess, area of expertise is with children and uh, children with trauma or traumatic grief and loss. So um, I am a licensed and board certified art therapist. I'm also a licensed professional counselor. Um, And then I have additional certifications in developmental trauma, as well as the trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy model, which is not my favorite model at all. What what is that? Tish is like shaking her head no. (laughs) We're on the same page. I I have that cert too, but I never use it. It, What is is it for? So it is a model devised specifically for children who have experienced trauma. Um, and it's to help them work through and basically decrease their post-traumatic stress symptoms. So in children, that looks a little different than adults. Um, so we're looking at things to be suppressed, such as like not having as many sleep disturbances, reducing the amount of nightmares um, that 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 child has separation anxiety from caregivers is a huge one Um, with a little bit older kids you're going to see some self-harming behaviors different depression and anxiety behaviors as well so we're looking at decreasing that over a short-term model the trauma-focused cbt model is you know you're supposed to have it done in under 20 sessions, which is (laughs) Tish and I are rolling our eyes at the same time, um, which is almost ridiculous. I'm going to be honest. Well, just the concept of putting a quote unquote time limit on it seems facetious. 
Yeah, so the whole reason why this model really exploded is because there was a large, large study done a couple years ago, might be more than a couple at this point, that really said it was the most effective model. And we know from people like Bessel van der Kolk and other individuals who trauma is their specialty and brain development and what happens to the brain in different stages of life when trauma occurs, that's really not the best solution. But insurance companies really liked it. So they backed up and funded this huge study that then said it is the most effective treatment for trauma for children, period, the end. This is what you need to do. And I became certified in the model, which takes about two full years for your certification to be completed. Um, because I work at a local children's advocacy center, and it is a national standard for the national CAC organization. If you're a therapist in-house, you must have this certification done. And I am a grant-funded position, so part of my grant funding says I need to use this model with 40% or more of the children that walk through my door. No pressure there. No pressure there. (laughs) But honestly, I go back to being an art therapist and using – I'm – almost done. I just haven't bit the bullet, but I'm almost done with my play therapy certification as well. So I really go back to those modalities because I'm a true believer that your body is what remembers the trauma and that we need to heal the entire body and not just the cognitive behavioral piece. Now, when you say that you deal with a lot of people who have suffered trauma, are you speaking more towards physical or more towards psychological slash emotional? Both. So the majority of the kids that come through our door is because of sexual abuse allegations. The second most common is physical abuse and or physical abuse tied with domestic violence. So when we see physical abuse, more often than not, it's physical abuse that has occurred in a household where domestic violence has happened for years. And that child has just maybe gotten in between that abuser and the mother or another child or something along those lines. We also have a high number, believe it or not, of concerns for some human trafficking for teenage girls. And we do a lot of interviews for girls that have run away multiple times. Uh, Magical money uh, somehow appears in their PayPal account or in their checking account that their parents have set up. Or when they run away, they're found at motels with men over age, you know, adult men. So we do a lot of interviews for kiddos that we have high concerns of human trafficking as well. The reason that I had asked that is because trauma comes in so many different forms and it can be such a vague term to describe what somebody may be suffering from. Like I've suffered a lot of trauma, but never physically. And I never realized the toll that it was taking on me until I got to basically a breaking point. And, you know, kudos to my boss for recognizing this, because basically how I had my breakdown was I was at work. It was a particularly stressful project because nothing was going the way that I had planned or hoped to. And it got to the point where I literally just said, F- it. I am done with this job. I'm done working for this type of industry. I'm tired of coming home sore every day. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of that. And it was really just a manifestation of everything that I had been suppressing 
coming out all at once to the point where I said to both my bosses, I sent them a text message saying, today will be my last day. I appreciate every opportunity you've ever given me. And I had been there for 10 years at this point. So like, it's kind of a big deal just to kind of throw that out there so willingly without any explanation whatsoever. So my boss had called me up and he asked me what was going on. And I was telling him about how I was tired of feeling overwhelmed all the time, where even at home, I feel like every time I cross one thing off of my list of things that I'm trying to accomplish, I'm adding two to three more things, and I'm just never feeling caught up. And because I have had so much time to process on my own all of the things that I had been going through without another perspective to bounce it off of, with the exception of my family and friends who, like I said before, no offense to them, their primary goal in listening to my problems is they want to help me get over the problems. And that's not something that can be fixed like that or with one conversation or just by being there. And that was something that I started to also allow to contribute to my feeling overwhelmed was that I know that that's what their goal is And I'm putting pressure on myself to appease them, but it's not doing me any good to try to satisfy the goals of other people for the sake of my own well-being. So he basically explained to me a policy that our our work has, which I wish it was something that was available to everyone. I don't want to get into the politics of universal health care. But our work has a policy in which for people like myself who need to seek out help, there's a medical leave of absence that I could take. And he basically said, don't, you've been through a lot. Don't quit your job. Just take some time off and get yourself some help. So I did that. And I took three months off because that's how long my short term leave of absence allowed me to take. And even though I went back sooner than I thought that I was ready, still life goes on. So when we're talking about the concept of somebody reaching out to get help with trauma or whatever it is that they're experiencing because everybody I think on some level deals with anxiety yeah (laughs) it's not always debilitating it's not always overwhelming but everybody suffers from it you know just a sudden rush of panic that you may feel for no particular reason everybody can I'm sure relate to that at some point so when it comes to the concept of sitting down with somebody to talk about their issues what Tish, would your recommendation be for somebody to take that first step? So, and you brought up some wonderful points too, Ian, that I think a lot of people can really resonate with. Um, The first being, A, I don't know where to turn. And B, I don't know what options are even available with my employer. Our practice works a lot with what's called employee assistance programming. And a lot of people don't even know they have this benefit. So if you reach the point where you become so overwhelmed, I always recommend people talk to their HR department first. Sometimes employers will offer free counseling. So they contract with a specific counselor and you can get your first three to eight therapy sessions for free without even having to worry about a copay. Yeah, because I didn't even know that that program that I took advantage of was even available to employees until somebody who worked in my office made me aware of that. Yeah, so that that's huge. And then I, I believe like the program you're talking about is FMLA. It is. Yep. So and if it's a large company, that's also available for most people in Pennsylvania, at least. And we as counselors can fill out those forms to help assist that and start that process. So when it comes to, I I'd still want to focus on the beginning aspects, because I think that's the most important step, is taking that first step and realizing 
that I can't do all of this on my own. Maybe it's in my best interest to talk to somebody. How do I go about doing that? Because I, I know some people who have suffered loss or experienced grief or anxiety to a debilitating level, and they don't know where to start, and they have all of these questions. And the first question is, where do I even start? Now, what I had done was I went online and I sought out specifically therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists who deal with my particular issues directly, which is mainly focused on loss. And I kind of approached it with this open mind of, okay, I'll see what she has to say, but I'm also not going to feel like I'm stuck with this one person. If I don't feel like it's working out after the first session or two, I'm going to seek options elsewhere. And I think that's another important thing to stress to people who, who want to reach out. You don't have to go with the first person that jumps out on the page. And you don't we have to, don't take offense to that. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't mean that you failed in getting help because you didn't connect with the person that you're trying to open up to. I admittedly was unsure of my doctor when we first started, mainly for ego concerns. I have to constantly tell myself I'm not smarter than her, but that's my own personal issue. I'm sure, Peach, you know. That's a personality trait that I work on daily. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> that's okay. But, like, I had to, I, I basically just kind of adopted the Philadelphia 76ers approach of bettering myself, and that's trust the process. Mm -hmm. I know that that probably doesn't resonate to a lot of people because not everybody's a sports guy. I don't even watch basketball. I just know friends that know that. But trusting the process is such an important motto because there are some days I go in there and I don't think that it's working out. And I don't necessarily want to start over with somebody else, especially with somebody I've been seeing for two to three years already mm -hmm. because we've already done all this work that like, I had to sit down with her one day and I said, let's do an inventory of where we're at with progress like what is different now than when I first came in because one of the things that I had talked about with my boss which kind of triggered him into telling me that I should go get help was I brought up the concept of suicide and it wasn't so much about the idea that I wanted to do it it was that I would think about the concept of it and empathize with people who felt like it was necessary to do that and at the time two of my biggest influences in music, Chester Bennington and Chris Cornell, within a year had taken their own lives. And that was really crushing to me because it demonstrated that it doesn't matter how adored you are, how respected you are, how much success you have, how much money you make, how famous you are. It, none of that matters because you still have to go home and struggle with the things that you struggle with every day. And to me, like when I started thinking of the concept of that, I was starting to empathize with the idea that People who commit suicide don't want to die or kill themselves. They just don't see any other way out of eliminating the pain that they deal with every single day. And when I brought that up to my boss, I think just the hearing the word suicide just kind of triggered him into thinking like, you need to get some help. Let's, let, let's, I don't even want to talk about this. And, you know, admittedly, he's probably not the, the person I should have opened that up to, but that's who was there at the time because I was going through this emotional breakdown. And I'm sure that I'm not the only person that can relate to the concept of, I 
don't think about suicide because I want to kill myself. It's just I can empathize with the people who do. Peach, when you're dealing with kids and they've suffered sexual abuse, physical abuse, obviously some emotional and psychological abuse, what would you say to a kid who really doesn't understand the gravity of what it is that they're suffering through and going through so that you can kind of start to, I don't want to say manipulate, but steer them onto a a better, more clearer path of recognizing, understanding, and rebuilding, so to speak. Well, I think for me, it, it there's twofold. So when we say that I work with kids, I do, right? But I have to work with the parents or the caregivers. And so one thing that you said earlier about that stigma and where do you start, our families that come in, they are met with a victim or child and family advocate who kind of says, we have services here. If you don't want to come here, we have all, you know, they hand out this pamphlet of here's all these services. Here's services for the parents to go and process what their child has been through. Here's services for the child. Here's help with whatever you need, right? And so for me, it's more of a twofold because so many of our parents, believe it or not, don't want their kids to come to trauma therapy. It's it's almost this terrible thing. Well, my child doesn't need help. They will be fine. And it's not about the kids' feelings. It's about that parent's feelings and that stigma of there's nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong with my kid. My kid will be okay. I don't want to hear it over and over again that this happened. And typically there's a lot of guilt there from the parent that somehow they allowed this to happen um, on whatever level it may be. So there's always this underlying feeling when I have families with that dynamic coming in. Well, you also have to deal with parents who may be the cause of their physical or sexual abuse and don't want the kids to expose them. Yeah, that's another level. Um, And and that gets a little more complicated on how they come into services because there's typically custody things and we have to get a judge to override uh, a parent's parental rights of a child and saying, no, I don't want my kid to have therapy. Well, you're the alleged perpetrator. Of course, you don't want your kid to have therapy. And, you know, we have to go above them to the court system to get that overrided so they can come to services. But I guess in terms of your question on steering them, I guess for me, I'm very real, especially with my teenagers when they come in, like, listen, this is for you. Within these four walls, we can talk about or create art or we can do whatever you want to do here. But the limits are we don't have to tell your parents things unless you're going to harm yourself or someone else is harming you. We can keep this very confidential. And this is all about you and what you need in this time and how to steer them that way. Um, when When I have kids that are... Well, you brought up suicide who have talked about suicide or have had self-harming behaviors or maybe some of my kids have already been in and out of multiple residential treatment facilities or inpatient units because of having self-harming or suicide attempts. And for those kids, they already come in looking at me like no one else helped me. Why do you think you're going to? Which is a valid question. So I, I bring that up myself right off the bat. And I bring up right off the bat that I am not here to fix you. 
I am not here to make you feel happy. I am not here to change your life. I'm here to support you as you do all those things. Um, And having that very real conversation with them, which 95% appreciate because no one's laid it out there like that for them in the past. It's all this hush, hush by the parents. This didn't happen here. Go get treatment, you know, sending them away when they're self-harming because the parents don't want to deal with it. They don't know how to deal with it. And sometimes there's that pride or that guilt that they don't want to seek trauma therapy for that reason. I think it's really what you said was really important to emphasize is that you're not trying to fix all of their problems. And it's really important to go in there with that mentality of they are there, they meaning you, are there to help them through it themselves. I mean, the problem may not ever be quote-unquote fixed, but if it is, it's not going to be because of something you say or something that you do. It's it's a realization that they're going to come to on their own, and you basically just kind of guide them towards realizing that themselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's about planting seeds as well, because sometimes we I have kids come in who are in foster care and it's about planting those seeds of how to keep themselves safe and how to work on these issues for the rest of their lives, because sometimes I don't know if they're going back or not. And very often, you know, I don't get to say goodbye or have a closure. I just find out that the judge decided that kid got to go home despite all the things that happened to them. So it's about planting seeds and supporting them on how to take care of themselves. And Tish, is that pretty much parallel with your experiences with your patients? Um, Yeah, I like to often say as a counselor, sometimes we facilitate change and sometimes we get the privilege to bear witness to it. So when you walk into that therapy office, we get to hold space and, and share space with somebody as they're going throughout their journey. And it's defined by them. And we all go in our t- own timetables. So if I walk into somebody's office and say, yeah, you know, my partner tells me I have this problem and I need to fix it, there's no motivation for me to change. So there's this readiness component that has to be open for therapy too. I think open-mindedness just throughout the entire process is the Mm -hmm. most important thing to emphasize to anybody who is looking to seek out any type of treatment or help because your problems aren't going to be fixed overnight. They're not going to be done in 1, 10, 20 sessions. I mean, maybe they could be depending on your level of involvement with whatever it is you're seeking help for. But like for me, especially in wake of my wife's death, Because I had told the story of everything regarding her medical problems to the problems that persisted between the two of us and how it affected our marriage and how uh, the the circumstances surrounding her death and then how I, I had told the story so many times that I had become basically numb to it. And it's almost to the point now where here we are almost four years later since my wife's passing, I have to remind myself that like telling people that I'm in my mid thirties and I'm, and my wife has passed away, that is shocking to people. And it's not shocking to me anymore because I've lived with it every single day. And when I go to tell the story, like I can almost relive some of the feelings that I experienced vicariously through the people that I'm telling it to because it is incredibly sad and traumatizing and just depressing. And I even try to preface it by saying, like, are you sure you want to hear this story? Because it is going to bum you the hell out. But 
because I told the story so many times and kind of became numb to it, that almost made it impossible for me to process the grief and loss that I was suffering at the time. And that was what my doctor had helped me with was, why don't you tell me the story again, but this time associate and attach feeling words to it. Tell me about how this particular incident or how this particular day or this event made you feel so that we can start to process what it is that you had gone through so that hopefully we can get you to another place to where you're not feeling so overwhelmed because you hadn't processed all of those emotions. Now, instead of just focusing on loss and trauma, I want to talk about some of the other things that people reach out for for help, whether it be marriage counseling or even something that I don't even know of. So like Tish, what kind of patients do you see in in regards to why they come to see you? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you explain. Like, give Give me kind of like a rundown of what your clients come to see you to help them with? Sure. I certainly think private practice is a bit of different of a different world when we speak in terms of clientele. So I think, unfortunately, therapy gets a rep that you need to see little green men crawling the walls before you seek treatment. Mm-hmm. And that is not at all the case. Um, I see people, yes, with, with serious mental illness, like we would perceive um, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, eating disorders, but I also get people who are just overwhelmed with life, especially in light of COVID-19 right now, sure. and the race riots, and everything going on. I have a lot of people reaching out just saying, I need help. I'm stuck at home with my family all day. I can't leave my house. I'm scared to go out. I'm feeling down. And this is somebody who's never experienced depression before in their life, but we're adjusting to this new normal. We call that the walking well when people are out and, and we can function and we can go to jobs. But we're, we're feeling this like we're in the eye of the storm. And it's just like that sense of overwhelm you were describing earlier. Yeah. And, and people like that sometimes can really benefit from having a third person in their life. You come in, your problems you lay out stay in these four walls. They don't leave. We're bound by confidentiality. We're not your sister, your mother, your brother. We're not going to try to fix you or jump in with her cape. And you get to share from your point of view. We're not going to tell you you're wrong either. And that can be a really good outlet during stressful times like these. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially like from my perspective, I like to talk, believe it or not. No. (laughs) I have a lot to say. And sometimes I get frustrated because I don't get to get all my thoughts out without somebody trying to cut me off so that they can explain how they relate or they can cut me off to give me their point of view or their opinion on what it is that I'm talking about. And even though I joke about it with my doctor sometimes because I tend to get very long-winded, she gives me the opportunity in an open forum to just get it all out there without worry of being interrupted Especially, you know, going back to my wife, a lot of people know that I have suffered this loss and they try to come to me with their experience and how they can relate. And while I appreciate them trying to connect with me on that level, it really is kind of a turnoff for me because even though, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that I have suffered a more significant loss than anybody else who's ever suffered loss. It is not the same to say that like you lost your best friend when you were teenagers or your mom passed away when you were 10. Like 
I understand, you know, grief and loss affects us all in different ways, but like it, it almost makes me angry when somebody right. tries to relate to the to the loss that I've experienced instead of just listening to how it's affected me. And that is how my doctor has really been able to help me process all that stuff because she doesn't try to relate. She doesn't try to fix. She doesn't try to offer opinions. She just listens and then asks me thought-provoking questions that'll help me better describe what it is that I'm thinking and feeling at that given moment. That's the essence of therapy right there. Oh, I figured that out really (laughs) easily. I mean, it's funny because like, I actually considered asking her to join us on this, but I didn't want to like make it complicated for our future sessions Mm -hmm. because I don't think she would be comfortable talking about what it is that we talk about unless I volunteer the information. And when I was considering the idea of having her on with us. I just figured if anything that would might that might inhibit the conversation that we're trying to have because when I'm talking about the frustration that I feel with people trying to relate, I'm not even asking you guys to tell me stories that you've had with patients who can also relate cuz like that doesn't help me. It doesn't help me process what I'm feeling to know that other people feel it too because that kind of opens up this Pandora's box of you're not special. And I mean, we all are. We're all snowflakes. It doesn't help me process my emotions to know that other people feel it too. You know, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I think that's a such a great point because people in general want to make everyone else feel better. Right. right? Mm-hmm. They want to help. And, and sometimes that's just not what you need mm-hmm. um and so that i know i well i encouraged you to go to therapy you did and that was one of the reasons why i did and i remember very specifically one evening or afternoon that we were texting back and forth and you made the comment to me like thank you for listening but i don't feel any better right and i said well no sh- I was like, you talked to me for an hour and a half via text message, and I'm not your therapist, I'm your friend. And you you were like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, I think that was the turning point in our discussions that we've had of like, I think Ian gets it. I think that stigma for you was taken away, hopefully, in that moment that you were like, oh, Okay, this is this is what I can do and this is not something to be looked down upon. Yeah, cuz like for me, like I said before without trying to reiterate myself, I used to think that it takes a certain kind of person to think that they need to reach out and get help. I'm strong enough to know that I can fix my problems myself. While I'm not saying that like I'm not strong enough to fix my problems. I'm also strong enough to admit that I can't do it all on my own. And it's being open-minded enough to know that it doesn't matter how you go about getting help. It's that you get help. Whether that's talking to a friend or talking to a therapist or a psychologist or going to some kind of group therapy where you can connect emotionally with people who have suffered similar things that you have. Like everybody has their own way of connecting and processing. And for me, just being able to talk to someone who I know isn't going to try to fix me, 
or isn't going to try to relate to me and, and is just going to allow me to get all of my thoughts and feelings out. Because that's another thing that she would cut me off a lot and say, like, I don't want to hear about how you think. I want to hear about how you feel. Mm-hmm. And those, like, I've learned that's two totally different things. Mm-hmm. Yep. And because, you know, because I'm very introspective and introverted, despite the fact that I have a podcast, I, <laughs> I process a lot of things decompartmentally. I don't even know if that's a word. But it's like, now. Yeah. Well, you compartmentalize. I, that's the word I was trying to say, <laughs> but I kept trying to put the D in front of it. You don't need to. Yeah, you don't need the D. You don't need the D. I, I, I compartmentalize things, and because I have so much time on my own now with my wife not being here, I almost like take all of my thoughts as gospel. And sometimes it helps to know that that's dumb. Not dumb in a way to like insult my own intelligence. It's just, no, that's just not how processing works. I watched this show on Showtime called Billions. And this always resonates with me to the point where I had a conversation about it with my, my doctor. And one of the characters on the show is a psychiatrist. Her job is to basically help with the mental health of people who work in the field of fund hedging so that they are always mentally strong enough to make the right decisions at the right time so that their clients can make money. And one of the things that she talked about was when you have two completely different and conflicting feelings about one thing, our mindset almost defaults to one of those feelings has to win out over the other in order for you to decide how you're going to feel about that one thing. And the thing that my doctor is trying to help me with is that's horseshit. You can live in a gray area where you can feel two totally different things mm-hmm. about one thing and and have it not affect the way that you remember that thing. Again, through personal experience, I've had a lot of really great highs with my wife and I had a lot of really depressing lows with my wife to the point where I was making a lot of decisions that were destructive to myself personally and destructive to our marriage and destructive to her both physical and mental health because she was dealing with chronic pain issues all the time while also trying to deal with the issues that are existing in our marriage and whatever else you want to pile on top of that. And when it comes to my wife's passing, it was almost as if like I was trying to process who she was as a person and how I want to remember her. And I had trouble trying to sift through all the emotions that come up when I think about her because they are all over the spectrum. And when I got over the idea of the conflict needs to exist in my brain, that one of those emotions needs to sift out over all the other ones for me to decide how I feel about it, it made me more empathetic to my own feelings. I think that's like a, a, a breakthrough that I had was just explaining that line from billions to my doctor and then her basically interpreting that as that doesn't... I mean, it resonates with you, so obviously, like, you you find some meaning in it, but that doesn't mean that it's true. So, when we're talking about the concept of, like, processing things emotionally, everybody does it differently. I'm sure kids do it a lot differently mm-hmm. than adults because they can, you know, they can derive from their own experiences. And so, when when we're talking about how to navigate the process... Peach, when when you're dealing with kids, particularly, I mean, I'm sure Tish, you can attest to this with uh, adult clients as well. 
what would you say is like the most important thing in your process with a client or patient, sorry, to get them to open up and be honest with you as well as themselves so that they can begin to process and sift through all of the all the emotional baggage that comes with whatever it is they're suffering through? Well, I guess for me working with kids, uh, whether I'm at the CAC or I'm at my private practice where I see a lot of traumatic grief and loss kids and a lot of kids struggling with high conflict custody situations, I think the biggest thing is that reminding kids you're allowed to have more complex feelings than just one thing. For example, just with the abuse side, I see so many kids that are in foster care or have lost a parent, maybe not to death, but they're not that parent's no longer involved because of maybe some choices that he or she made in their own life. And, you know, these kids remember all these horrible things about somebody coming home intoxicated, beating up on people, or even the sexual assault piece. But at the end of the day, the those people are still that child's mother, father, brother, sister, cousin, uncle, you know, and a part of them still loves that person. And they have all these adults around them very often saying things like, yeah, but remember what they did to you. Or, you know, you have a child up for adoption and they're like, well, I love my adoptive family. I want to stay with them. But I love my mom. And the adoptive family can't understand it because of the just horrifying living conditions and things that that child went through. And explaining that to adults is, I think, the complicated part because children are so innocent, they get it better. They get it better. They do things to please the parents or their caregivers. And in custody situations, we'll have kids come in. They literally have two separate drawers for their drawings. One's for mommy's week and one's for daddy's week. Hmm. And they make sure that they don't take something home they made on mommy's week to daddy's house. Because that could be upsetting to the parents. So kids actually compartmentalize things better than we do. And they're more resilient than adults at some, t- at some points. Would, would you agree with that, Tish? I, I would say it's different. I, rather than more, I would say it's different in what I, I see with adults. So a big thing when adults walk in the room, you know, there are, are two different subtypes of people, I guess, not to put people in box, the cognitive thinkers and the feelers, right? So sometimes in therapy, just as you described, we're trying to get people to feel and identify feelings. Other times we're trying to get them to recognize, okay, my feelings aren't facts. I have this cognitive piece over here. In DBT work, we call that the wise mind, balancing the two. I think that's a big piece, but also what I know in trauma therapy and where trauma therapy has been taking a shift, we know that the body holds all this, right? Mm -hmm. So somatic work, whether it's with a kid or an adult, is crucial. And what I mean by somatic work is getting in and doing less talking and more sensory stuff. Like, where do you hold that feeling? Does it feel like electric in your body? Do you feel pressure anywhere? Well, if we get up and throw some yoga blocks at a wall, which I love doing with my adults (laughs) and kids, (laughs) or squeeze a stress ball, or throw an eight-pound ball back and forth, what are you feeling now? What sensations in your body are are coming up now? And getting people, I'm so surprised how many adults do not have language for what their feelings feel like in their body. 
That's true. It's, That's very true. It's amazing that you say that because I don't know if I've ever described because like I suffer from panic attacks and I I have described like the side effects or the things that I'm feeling to my doctor when I have them just like how my vision kind of feels colorful I feel like my lungs are compressed and I have trouble breathing Uh, I feel like my my lung is being or my heart is being squeezed Mm -hmm. tight like there's just this tightness in my chest and basically she's she just kind of says to me well what do you do when you do that and I say I try to clear my mind and calm myself because I know that panicking while having a panic attack is going to make things so much worse. But like, I never really described like physically what I'm feeling when I feel that I'm just, especially in the moment trying to get past it. And I think that I'm doing more harm than good by doing that because it's like treating the symptoms and not the cause. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And Tish said it so well about the trauma being held in the body. And sometimes I skip over that piece because kids are, you know, they're playing, they're playing in the sand tray, they're making art, you know, I I see a huge difference from a kid, we start talking about one topic, they start scribbling harder, their pressures harder, their artwork looks totally different from week to week. Plays their language. Yeah, and play is their language. As we talk and process Kids do it through play and storytelling and and creating art. And that's their language to be in. Well, it's even important to recognize that like depression and anxiety, like it's not all encompassing all the time. I can think specifically of like a video that Chester Bennington's wife posted Mm -hmm. after he had uh, killed himself, which was taken like a day or two beforehand in which he is just laughing and having a great time with his kids. And she put that on there just to show that like, this is what depression looks like too. With the depression and anxiety that I feel, Peach, you know better than anybody, I can go out and perform right now and I would be just the Ian Strong that everybody knows that I can be. Mm -hmm. And then I will come home six hours later and not be able to get out of bed the next day because I feel so debilitated by all of the things that I feel that either were triggered to feel that way or just come up for no reason at all, which is kind of what spikes my panic, sparks my panic attacks. And it's, it's important to recognize that like, Depression and anxiety affects everybody differently, and it doesn't affect them all the time. That's so true. And I think it's also important along with that, because you just gave a beautiful depiction of how it gets felt in your body. So you can put on this, this I don't want to say a mask, but you can go out, you can socially engage. But then six hours later, it's so exhausting because we hold that all in our nervous system. Mm-hmm. So our central nervous system just kind of lights on fire after a while and says, no more. You're not tending to this. I'm going to make you stop. Right. right. It, like I kind of like I don't want to put this in a box, but say like I, I identify with like the troubled artist, you know, and, and his, his art is so expressive or so good because he's able to channel all of that stuff and focus it in on the work or media medium that he is to express himself. And I think that like, that's why I have such a great stage presence, be it via stand-up comedy or on, uh, in music or whenever I was a wrestler was because I, I'm so introverted in my private life that I let all of those inhibitions go and become just the biggest extrovert when I'm on stage because there's kind of this duality to where like I get off on performing because of the the way that I am making the crowd respond, but the crowd doesn't respond unless they feel what I feel. So like 
when me and Dan are doing our awesomely strong thing, the reason that it's so successful is because the he and I are legitimately having the best time when we're performing. And that just resonates through the crowd to where, yeah, we're going to have a great time too, because these guys are obviously having a great time. But to compartmentalize all of that, not that I'm trying to ruin the stigma of awesomely strong, it's almost like I would not be the performer that I am if I didn't have the struggles that I deal with so personally in my private life. And that was something, especially when I was a wrestler in my 20s, that I really struggled with because even my my friend Phil, the conquistador I had a couple of episodes on, he even mentioned that like as much as I love to go out and have a great time and be the center of attention, I'm also a very private guy. You know, whenever I was a professional wrestler, I wasn't like... You know, I probably shouldn't have wrestled under my real name, but I wasn't like giving out information for fans to be able to get in contact with me outside of a show. And I, I guess where I'm going with this is like, again, like I said, depression and anxiety affects everybody in different ways. And it's not always debilitating and not always all encompassing to where that's the only thing that you feel all the time. But you do feel it in some percentage all the time just not 100% of the time. We do this really cool drawing with kids that have had traumatic grief and loss, and we do this wave. So I have them create these waves on a paper, and we talk about the real highs and the real lows that they experience and having sometimes feeling that guilt of, oh, this person just passed away, but here I am a week later out doing something fun. And then that kind of makes them feel bad or they they feel like that's wrong to do. And so we talk about those waves and how we want those waves. They're never going to go away, but we want them to be smaller and less extreme so that you're feeling more even keeled and you can have those highs and you can have those lows. They're just not so extreme. So it's a really cool way to get kids to understand that and see that. But also, like you described, having those extreme kind of like high moments, but then you crash the next day. And that's that's part of that neurobiology and that feeling that in your body and holding it there is having that traumatic grief and loss. I mean, because I'll admit in the time that we've been recording here, I felt it twice just just because of like how publicly I'm being open with a lot of this stuff. And I don't, I'm not the kind of guy that really gives a shit about what other people think of me, but at the same time, like I also want to do a service to what it is that we're talking about. So like, I'm, I'm like putting this pressure on myself to like, want this to be good. But at the same time, like I'm not going to get what I want out of it unless I'm being open and honest with myself. So going back to like, I, I want to, touch on what I was talking about before about feeling multiple things and having to have one emotion went out over the other. Is that something that you, you see a lot of people try to struggle with? I I don't want to say try to struggle with just, you see people struggle with that as well. I think even as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking about in our dialectical behavioral therapy group, we actually have an educational component on that. And I always call DBT jokingly the the skills that somebody should have taught us in kindergarten, but nobody ever thought to. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I ha- I sit around a room with, you know, anywhere between five to eight different adults and we're talking about this topic and it's like I'm watching light bulbs go off. You mean I can be happy and sad? 
and even anxious all at the same time. And mm-hmm. it's like, mm-hmm. But until it's almost like somebody gives you permission, we don't even know that could occur. We, we, we stuff it and we stuff it in our bodies and we hold it there. And then we wonder why, oh, why do I have this knot in my shoulder? Or why does my stomach always feel like I'm in knots? Or some people we even see end up with stomach ulcers as a byproduct because we're not giving ourselves that time or that outlet. When I talked to my doctor, one of the questions that she posed to me is like, what, what do you think is the biggest thing you've learned from your wife passing away? And I used to always kind of deflect that question because like, I don't want to just take everything that she was to me and just try to turn it into a lesson. I think that really devalues or dilutes like the meaningfulness of not just to me, but everybody that she had a connection with. But when I got past that and I really started to think about the answer to that question, my my best answer to this day that I've come up with is empathy. Because, you know, she suffered from physical problems that you can't see. It was all internal. And when she would explain to me how she's feeling, whether it be physically or emotionally, I would always try to, like, be supportive, but also try to fix it. And having been through all the experiences that I've been through since then, I understand that like fixing it shouldn't even be an option that you consider on the table. It's mm-hmm. it's basically like being an empathetic ear to somebody to where you are genuinely listening to what it is that they have to say and then responding to it with whatever words that you feel like could make them feel they're being listened to. Because so often in a conversation, especially, you know, when you're talking amongst close friends, there's this back and forth of like, you you constantly either need to relate or you need to one up so that either it's all in an effort to try to fix the problem on the surface. And it's so much more complex than that. When I'm talking about not just grief and loss, but just complicated feelings in general, because... More often than not now, I'm bitching about my job more than anything, especially in wake of COVID and the stresses that are coming as a result of me being an essential worker. It's it's a lot to process, but at the same time, it's not if you allow yourself the opportunity to process it. And I think that that's something that a lot of people aren't taking advantage of because of the stigmas associated with mental health help. You know, I, I have a friend... I'm not going to say who it is, but they've suffered a traumatic loss recently, and they're just now starting to come to terms with, I think I might need to talk to somebody about this. And it's my hope that anybody who can relate to what I'm talking about with either my wife or grief or loss or depression or anxiety can listen to this and be like, what do I have to lose by going and talking to somebody and seeing what benefits can be gained by doing so. Because really, with the exception of a little bit of time and maybe a little bit of money, you really don't have anything to lose. Especially if you go into it with the mindset of, I'm going to be open and honest because I'm only going to get out of this what I put into it. And is that is that something that the both of you experienced where like you struggle to try to help your patients because you know that they're not being as honest with themselves as they could be? I think that kind of goes back to Tisha's point earlier, just about you can't force somebody to come in. There's a there's a 
level of they need to be ready and be seeking that help. And I even find that with my teenagers and my kids. If they're coming in not ready or not willing, that that's even a bigger hurdle that you have to get over. So one of my therapy idols is Irv Yalom. Um, And he's very relational and often uses the therapy relationship as a metaphor and a parallel for what happens in our other relationships. So with that being said, if a client is coming in too and and not being 100% forthcoming, how is that modeled in their relationships outside of here? So we're coming to a therapy office that we know our therapists, as long as they're practicing ethically, is going to be non-judgmental and confidential. What's said here stays here. And if I can't feel I can be 100% honest, there's something internally going on for that person. And I guarantee it's being paralleled in other relationships as well. And how is that interfering with recovery across the board? I struggled with that personally because when I would go in there, there were things about choices I was making or actions I was taking or things that I was doing that I wasn't bringing up as part of my story to my doctor because I felt that controlling the narrative was more important than processing what I'm doing and how I feel about it. And it wasn't until that I gave myself the open forum to do that, that I made the realization that like, maybe some of these behaviors that I'm exhibiting aren't really the most helpful to me, and they're actually doing more harm than good. Because that's another thing that I think a lot of people struggle with is controlling their own narrative versus versus what reality is. And as we wind down here, I want to try to at least give a little bit more attention to eliminating some of the stigmas associated with mental health that we haven't already discussed that maybe somebody who has listened to this the whole way through and is still maybe a little apprehensive may think, well, again, I don't have anything to lose by doing that. Is there anything that you can think of that we haven't already talked about that you think is associated with a negative stigma associated with mental health that we really should just try to dispel right now? I know that's a really vague... That's incredibly broad, Ian. I know. <laughs> yeah, I don't... Well, ba- basically the point that I want to make as we start to wind down here, unless Tish, you have something to add to... I do have something to add, and okay. I also want to add about your piece about controlling the narrative, too, mm-hmm. if I get two seconds, promise. There's beauty in giving the, being given the option to control the narrative. You're coming into a space, and I think that's the important thing. I think people think counselors and this ties into the stigma too that counselors are always psychoanalyzing you and they know your deepest darkest secret just by looking at you and that is not at all the case when somebody walks into my office I we have a social media policy people sign because that's the world we're in today and we want people to know their rights but part of that is a discussion around you get to control this narrative you get to present to me the side of you that you want me to see I'm not going to play detective. I'm not going to Google you. I'm not going to look you up on Facebook. And I respect your privacy. Hmm, And I think when we're given that leeway, then some of the truth can start to unfold. And we can say, oh, I do have control over this process. I can address what I want to in this space. Yeah, because social, I mean, one of the negative and toxic things about social media is that all that is is narrative control. We we put out there what we think other people are going to see as our best lives. Influencers, right? Yeah, exactly. And 
one of the things that I want to basically kind of end on is if I've learned anything from my whole experience, it's that it's okay to not be okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. And to not be okay doesn't mean that you're failing at life. So if you're feeling that you're not okay, that's okay. And you can get help to try to be okay. And it's not always going to be okay, yeah. but that's okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what we know statistically, one in four people at any given time are diagnosed with a mental health concern. You're not alone. Yeah. And it's not just, I know we did a lot of talk about grief and loss, but you know, whether it's you're confused or you have complicated emotions about your sexual identity or what Donald Trump tweeted today or the Black Lives Matter movement or whatever it is that you have some kind of cognitive confusion about, it can always be talked through and you can always get help with it through a perspective and the lens of somebody who's not going to cut you off, who's not going to relate to you, is not going to judge you. And that is the most important part of reaching out and getting help. Even if you don't think you need it, again, what do you have to lose? Yeah. And I think there's a a generational shift I'm seeing with that. Like my millennials, I hate to subtype people (laughs) again, but I'm seeing more and more millennials open to counseling. Whereas our boomer generation still has that, or the Gen Xers pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. But these younger generations are catching on and seeing the value in having this objective third party and that we're in a world that's on fire. So why shouldn't we get some support? throughout that sure yeah i'm glad you said that about the boom boomers and the gen x because those are the parents that i see right now and you know getting across to them that control and allowing your child to have some control in their healing process from a trauma because i have so many parents that may have had their own trauma when they were younger and they said well i didn't get help i'm fine so my child doesn't have to go through that and it's that's not what we want to give that precedence. We want your child to have their control and the control of their own narrative and their own story in their own individual therapy services. That first step in stopping the intergenerational trauma. Yes. That's the other piece we know now. Trauma is transmitted in our DNA. Mm -hmm. So let's say we had a great, great grandparent who was a Holocaust survivor. That's in our DNA and we're carrying that trauma until we stop it, until we get treatment, until we start to shift the cycle to not send that to our kids. We could do a whole nother podcast on on generational trauma. (laughs) Well, I do need to wrap this up. I want to thank you both again for coming here today. I think that this has been very eye-opening for me personally. I mean, even though I've already talked about a lot of this stuff already in in the forum to do it publicly, again, I hope that even one person listens to this and realizes that Ian Strong doesn't have it all together either, and that's okay. Again, if you need to reach out to somebody and get get some help, it's never too late, and you're not alone. So thank you both for coming here. I really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, and thank you. Taking that risk to be vulnerable, I really appreciate that because that's how we stop stigma. I agree. Yeah. Thanks again to Tish and Peach for coming on to the show and helping me shed some light and awareness on mental health. I can't stress enough the benefits of seeking out help if you feel that you need it, because at some point in our lives, we all go through some and there's really nothing to lose from unburdening all of the unnecessary weight that we carry every single day, even if just in a judgment-free zone for a finite amount of time. 
If you're interested in learning more about Tish's practice, you can do so by going on Facebook at Phoenix Counseling Services, LLC, or you can visit phoenixcounselingservices.net, read a few blogs, learn more about her and the people that work with her, or just get some more information on where you can get help for yourself. If you'd like to speak to a counselor today, you can do so by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. Available 24 hours a day. They speak English and Spanish, and they can help you with whatever you need to get you through the crisis or distress that you're feeling right at this moment. If you'd like to get in touch with this show, you can do so by following me on any major form of social media, be it Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just look up at Ian Strong Words, and you can get in touch with me there. You can also email this podcast at strongwordspodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to do me one of those things like like, follow, subscribe, leave me rating, stars, comments, all that stuff, I appreciate the feedback. And I think this particular episode, I want to hear feedback from you. I want to hear your journeys. I want to hear your struggles because it helps affirm to me that I am not alone as well. If you'd like to do something to support the show, you can do so by doing all of your regular Amazon shopping through my affiliate link at the website strongwords.buzzsprout.com. Just go to strongwords.buzzsprout.com, click on the affiliate link in the podcast description. It takes you right to Amazon.com or even opens the app on your smartphone. Just do all of your regular shopping and qualifying purchases will give me a kickback, which I can use to help cover production costs here on the show. It's of no additional cost to you and it helps me out in the process. It's a win-win for both of us and I thank you genuinely for doing that. So that's going to do it for another episode of Strong Words with Ian Strong. Come back in two weeks as I have a great episode and another great interview lined up for you. Have you ever sat down and actually wondered where your taxes go? Who gets to decide that and how the logistics of a budget gets passed? Well, I'm genuinely curious about all that too. So on October 12th, less than one month before the election, I'm going to be sitting down with the former executive director of appropriations for the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, Dr. Edward Dolan, to answer all those questions. We talk about the various streams of revenue in which state governments have to work with to appropriate your tax dollars, what role governors, lobbyists, and politicians play, as well as the role of politics itself in the decision-making process. We discuss the concept of defunding the police and how that could be logistically accomplished, what races that you should be paying attention to as the state election approaches, and more. So again, I'll see you in two weeks with my interview with Dr. Ed Nolan. And in the meantime, as I say every episode, stay safe out there. Spend a little time every day doing something that you love. And if you got something to say, keep your words strong. How strong? Ian Strong. Strong words!